All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, it's good to be together again in this uh, unusual way, certainly for our times. Um, but we are glad that you have gathered in and that you're here with us today. Uh, and I just want to reiterate something that Will said and to remind you of the importance of gathering together uh, with other believers. And of course, we can't do that physically, uh, really, too much, um, but we can do that virtually. And uh, the crew here, um, both this office staff and as well as uh, all of our leaders have been working really hard to put together uh, their small groups and to utilize the technology that is available there. So uh, if you regularly attend those, I'd encourage you to continue to do so. Uh, if you have never been to one of our small groups, now's a great time for you to plug in, check it out. Um, get yourself acquainted with the group and so on and so forth. Uh, and again, if uh, technology is something that you're not that familiar with and, and how to figure all that stuff out, uh, reach out to us. Will's going to send out that email with the video. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, we're, we're still on the phones here at church. We're still answering emails and things like that. So uh, if uh, you need anything, reach out to us and we will uh, help you as much as we're able to do so. One final reminder this morning, as I have been saying the last few weeks, uh, you know, so, so often when we, gather, we sit down at our computer, we have our phones with us, and we got all other sorts of things that are going on as well. And I just want to encourage you, let's just take some time now together. Let's put aside some time this Sunday morning uh, and put aside those distractions so that we might hear uh, what the Lord would have for us. And so with that, let me open our time in prayer. Father, we ask that as we begin to dig now into Mark chapter 11, Lord, that you would just settle our hearts and our minds here. And Lord, that we would be able to come into your presence. We'd be able to hear your voice. Lord, we'd be able to leave uh, this time uh, having been able to apply your word. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would bless your word as it goes forth and enters into our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 is where we have been. This will be our third week now in uh, Mark chapter 11. And if you were with us last week, you tuned in with us last week, you know that we have entered into what is uh, commonly referred to as the Passion Week, the, the final seven days of the life of Jesus Christ, the culmination, if you will, of his public ministry during those years he was here on the earth. And that Passion Week, it began, as we saw last week, with two events that took place on that Sunday. The triumphal entry, where Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, riding in on the coal, the foal of a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And when he went up onto the Temple Mount, sort of took it all in, and then made his way out of the city of Jerusalem. And so I'll reread to you verse 11 of chapter 11. It says, He entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve, with the disciples. Now, I kiddingly said last week that Jesus should have budgeted his time a little bit better, that he made this five-mile trek from Bethany into the city of Jerusalem, gets up on the Temple Mount, only to turn around and go back to Bethany, another five-mile journey. And I was kidding, certainly so. But in actuality, what we see is there's a method to what it is that Jesus is doing. Because we took some time last week to look at, the book of Malachi told us there's a prophecy that the Messiah would come to his temple and essentially assess the goings-on of the temple. 
Malachi chapter 3, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. And then notice, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. Look at verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? You see, the Messiah would come into his temple, and he would assess his people. He would evaluate his people. And so Jesus made his way to the temple that Palm Sunday morning, not to assess the buildings, not to look at the grounds and the flowers and all those sorts of things, but he came to assess the worshipers. He came to assess those people that had assembled themselves there at the temple. And as we saw, and we'll see today, the people failed that inspection. No wonder the prophet wrote, who can stand when he appears? And I bring it up again this morning because the, the rest of this chapter fits directly into this idea of Jesus going into the temple and assessing the Jewish people. Everything uh, going on from here in the, in the rest of this chapter is tied right back into that. It's directly related to that. And so the, the rest of these events are not going to be separate, unrelated events. Rather, they're intertwined with one another. And they serve the purpose of communicating to us God's response to the failed inspection he just completed of his children. You re, some of you may recall, in the Old Testament, we have the book of Daniel, a great prophetic book in the Old Testament, uh, popular to so many Christians, enjoy studying it and reading it and considering it. And in Daniel chapter 5, we have the account of the Babylonian king. His name was Belshazzar. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, it tells us that King Belshazzar, that he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Can you imagine the size of that party? And he drank wine in front of the thousand. And so he has this great, large, huge, drunken feast. And sometime during that feast, we read in Daniel chapter 5 that Belshazzar, probably a little bit tipsy, a little bit drunk from the, the great drinking, commanded that the holy vessels that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem when the Babylonians conquered the area of Israel, Belshazzar, he commands that those vessels be brought to him. We read this starting in verse 2. When he tasted the wine, Belshazzar commanded the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. He commanded that they be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And so they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. They drank from them, verse 4, they drank wine from them and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, of wood and of stone. And so the... Belshazzar and his little crew that he has there, his large crew that he has there, they were going to celebrate how wonderful and how powerful they were and how their gods of gold and of silver and bronze and all the other materials that he mentions there, how they were so much more superior to all the other gods of the earth. And you can imagine how the Lord God of heaven felt about that little display. Actually, you don't really have to imagine because the rest of the chapter goes on to tell you exactly what God thought of it and what his response was. And this, this is the portion of Scripture, maybe even if you haven't read it, you're familiar with it. This is the portion of Scripture where right there in the midst of the party, the Scripture says that the fingers of a human hand 
began to write on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. Actually, they began to carve into the plaster of the walls of the king's palace. Daniel 5.5 says, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and they wrote on the plaster of the wall of the palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Well, as the passage goes on, the words that were written there on the wall, heavenly graffiti, we'll call them, were many, many, tekel, and parson. They're not English words. They're actually words of Aramaic uh, descent. Um, but those words are there on the walls of that palace, many, many, tekel, and parson. And those words were words that were unfamiliar to Belshazzar. He wasn't familiar with Aramaic. And so not only did this human hand writing and carving into the, uh, the plaster of the walls freak him out, but these words of unknown meaning freaked him out. And he began to search for someone to give him an interpretation. And Daniel comes to his attention. Daniel the prophet, whom this book is named after. One in whom it says, was found light and understanding and excellent wisdom was found in him. And so Daniel could, by God's gifting, interpret these four words. And he does. We read about it there in Daniel 5. And it was not something that Belshazzar the king was going to like, because here's the interpretation, starting in verse 26. It says, now this is the interpretation of the matter. The matter, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, now Perez is the singular form of the word parson. Uh, and so Perez, your kingdom is divided and it is given to another. It's given to the Medes and to the Persians. God has numbered your days, assessed them. You've been weighed in the balances and you came up short and your kingdom is divided and given to another. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now, I bring this up and we go back to this passage about a foreign empire, the Babylonians, because this idea of uh, Belshazzar being weighed in the balances, it's exactly what Israel is going to go through here in Mark chapter 11. Israel is going to have their own many, many tekel and parson moment. Because even as Belshazzar was weighed in the balances that particular evening, what the Lord has done here in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, is he's gone up onto the Temple Mount this Palm Sunday, and he is weighing in the balances the people of Israel. He's weighing them, assessing them, evaluating them to see if they measure up to the standard that God would have for them. And as we go on today, we'll see they do not. Let's pick up, starting in verse 12, we read this. Now, on the following day, when they came to Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And Jesus said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard this. Now, this is certainly an unusual passage. Because at first glance, we look at this, and it, it seems to show the Lord responding much the way many of us respond to frustrating circumstances. And we, we get mad, and we take out our anger on the flat tire, or we take out our anger on the fig tree for not producing fruit that we want. Which, 
uh, it should be pointed out, wasn't supposed to be producing figs anyway. Take a look there at verse uh, 13. It was not the season for figs. So this passage and the next one, which we're going to look in a moment that you're probably familiar with, where Jesus goes into the temple and he begins to overturn all of the tables and chase people out of the temple, sort of paint this picture that Jesus is a fellow that's losing control that his emotions are getting the best of him, and he's freaking out here amongst the people. Now, that would certainly be out of character for the Lord. Uh, nothing we see uh, of that sort uh, previously in his life here. He's not that kind of guy that allows his emotions to take over. And so it's wise for us then to consider, well, then maybe something else is going on here, and I believe it is. And so slowly making our way through the text, we're going to attempt to point that out. First off, as we go through these verses, the first thing I want you to notice in verse 12, where it says they come from Bethany and Jesus is hungry. Following day, they come from Bethany and Jesus is hungry. Don't miss that. Because here you have the Lord of all the universe experiencing the limitations and the weaknesses of humanity. That the, the God that created all things was still got hungry and he still got tired. As we've been looking at, he became a servant to others during his time here on the earth. And now it's a small phrase, it's a somewhat insignificant verse, but it points out to us the way in which Jesus subjected himself to all of the sinless condi the, the conditions under which humanity lives. The word became flesh, John tells us, and dwelt among us, fully God and yet fully man. Now, as we move back to our passage here, that was just an aside. Jesus, the, the night prior, was in Jerusalem, but he stayed outside of the city of Jerusalem, perhaps for a variety of reasons. Maybe it was as simple as it was so crowded in the city, there was no place to stay. A little bit later, we're going to see he stayed outside of the city, probably to avoid those that were trying to kill him. But this particular night, Jesus leaves Jerusalem, goes back to Bethany, and now here, as we begin our passage, uh, Jesus makes his way from Bethany back into the city of Jerusalem. And as he's walking on that road with his disciples into the city of Jerusalem, we read in verse 13 that ahead of him in the distance is a fig tree. And it says that it's a fig tree in leaf. And since he's hungry, as verse 12 told us, his intention is to go to that tree, grab a fig for himself so that he can satisfy at least a little bit of his hunger. Now, I have to imagine most of us that are watching this, observing this, we're not that familiar with the fruit-bearing patterns of the Middle Eastern fig tree. I know that I certainly wasn't until I began to read this a little bit and study this during the week. And so I'll tell all of you, maybe you know, but perhaps you don't. In that part of the world, fig trees sprout their leaves in March and in April. And with that, the sprouting of those leaves in the beginning of the season in March and April, they had these small early ripe figs that began to bear uh, the fruit of the main crop uh, in early June. So let me rephrase that. In this part of the world, fig trees sprout their leaves in March and April, with small, early ripe figs, and then they begin to bear the main crop in early June. And we know that these events here, this day, Palm Sunday and so on, we know that this day is in early April, because that's when Passover would occur uh, in, that, um, in that time period. 
But even if we didn't have that clue that of what time of year it was, Mark goes on to tell us that it was not yet the season for figs, the full season for the main crop of figs. And so nobody should have expected that this tree would have been filled with the main crop of figs, but by the fact that it, was, it had some leaves that had begun to show, it should have been producing something. The full harvest wouldn't come for another six weeks or so, but since these trees were in leaf, it was reasonable for the Lord to expect that some of the early ripe figs would have been uh, produced with those leaves. Instead, Jesus gets there and he founds nothing. What he has found is a tree that gave the outward promise of some fruit, but that it didn't actually produce any fruit. And essentially, this tree becomes a picture, if you want to think of it this way, of false advertising. It had leaves, but it had no fruit. Now, remember the context of our passage. Remember that the evening prior, Jesus went into the confines of the glorious Temple Mount area which was one of the wonders of the ancient world, and that he found a place that gave the appearance of life. He found a place that gave the appearance of vitality, but unfortunately it was a place that was devoid of any heavenly fruit. And the fig tree here that Jesus encounters, it serves as a picture of the nation of Israel. It's a symbol of a nation that had the appearance of godliness and fruitfulness, but upon closer inspection, it revealed that there wasn't any fruit at all. Now, repeatedly in the Old Testament, <clears throat> repeatedly in the Old Testament, the prophets of God compared the nation of Israel to the fig tree. As such, the fig tree became representative of the nation of Israel, became sort of this symbol. And I was trying to think of a modern equivalent, a comparison. Much as the maple leaf today, it stands as a symbol of the nation of Canada. And so you look at the flag of Canada, that's a maple leaf there in the middle. Uh, the national tree of Canada is the maple tree. And so you see that flag, you see that leaf, and you immediately begin to think uh, of Canada. Well, similarly, the fig tree stood as a symbol for the nation of Israel. And like a fig tree full of leaves but with no fruit, Israel had become a people full of religious practice but devoid of any fruitfulness. And Jesus' response to the fig tree is going to be the same response he has for the Jewish people later in this chapter and beyond. And so Jesus here, finding no fruit, says to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And you'll notice the note is added there, and his disciples heard this. Now, we might look at this and say, oh, the poor fig tree. It'll never bear fruit because Jesus cursed it, the poor tree. But remember, it wasn't bearing any fruit anyway. And so all Jesus did was confine it to its present condition. And as we will see, Jesus is going to do the same thing with the nation of Israel as well. Jesus' rejection of this fig tree here is symbolic of his rejection of the nation of Israel, who, like Belshazzar, was weighed in the balances and found to come up short. And who, again, like Belshazzar, Belshazzar, would have the kingdom taken from them and given to another, which we now know to be the Gentile nations. Now, did any Jews in Jesus's day receive Christ as their king? Of course. Nearly every one of his early disciples were Jewish people. But the reality is the nation as a whole, 
and the representatives of the religious and the, and the political systems, they did not accept their Messiah. And they ultimately ordered the execution of God's anointed one. Again, they had an appearance of godliness with their rituals and their gowns and their prayers and their robes and so on, but they did not produce the fruit of godliness. This cursing of the fig tree is an acted out parable. And as I said in the beginning of our time this morning, uh, it's tied directly in with Jesus's assessment there at the end of verse 11. Well, they continue to move on. Verse 15, it says, and they came to Jerusalem and they entered the temple and they began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking for a way to destroy him, uh, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. I believe I pointed this out last week, but this is now the second time that Jesus is cleansing the temple of the commercialization and with it the corrupt practices that had come into the temple area there. The first one was at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. We read about it. We read about it in John chapter two. Here now we have one more of his doing so at the end of his public ministry, as his public ministry comes to a close. And first, verse 15, it begins by saying that he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Now, again, remember, when it says he entered the temple, Jesus didn't go into the building that was there on the Temple Mount area. The temple uh, consisted of about 30 acres of land that surrounded that building that had the holy place and the most holy place, also known as the Holy of Holies. And so when it says Jesus went into the temple, it's referring to the courts that surrounded the temple area there. Again, about 30 acres, that's about 20 football fields. You can go there now. Uh, it's pretty much the same area of land. It's this large area of land there at the top of the mount in Jerusalem. And those courts of the Temple Mount area, they were the places where the people came. The priests went into the building, uh, and only certain priests at certain times. The people, the worshipers, they came into the court areas. It was in the court areas that the sacrifices took place. It was in the court areas where the priests would lead the people in the, evening, the morning and the evening prayers. And those court areas, they were divided into sections. And so the nearest section to the building itself, that was where the Jewish men could go. The section just outside of that was where uh, Jewish men and Jewish women could go. And the section outside of that is where the Gentiles could go and no further. And so it's in that place where the court of the Gentiles, it's in that place where all of this hustle and bustle and trading and all this stuff is going on. It's in that place that Jesus would have gone the night before and observed and watched and saw what was going on there. And notice what Jesus says a little bit later in our passage. He says, you've taken this house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. The evening earlier when Jesus came to the temple, he would have come to that area and observed what was going on. 
And he would have saw, he would have seen, I should say, that the court of the Gentiles had become almost entirely secularized. This was a place for the nations to come to turn to and look to the God of Israel. And instead of it being a place of prayer and preparation, it had devolved into a place into a commercialized atmosphere of buying and selling, which made prayer and meditation almost impossible. And even worse than that uh, was the way in which the pilgrims that had come to Jerusalem to commemorate the Passover, the way in which they were taken advantage of and exploited in that very place. Jesus takes notice of it, and he brings judgment upon it. This temple had become a marketplace filled with those that were working in cooperation with the priest with the high priest and others. You know, it's interesting. One commentator I read pointed out that all of these little shops, it kind of reminded me of, there's that place down in South Jersey, Columbus Market, and you can go down there if you, you have stuff you want to sell or whatever, and you can rent a table uh, or a few tables or a booth or a little inside of a building, a room in a building or whatever. And you just put the money down, you pay for it, and you can sell your products and you get to keep your profit. Well, these little booths, these little tables, one commentator that I read pointed out that those shops that were set up there on the Temple Mount were actually owned by the high priest. And so the high priest would rent them out to these folks that were selling whatever it is, or they were doing the money changing, and they were financially benefiting off of the people that were ripping off the worshipers. It's despicable, quite frankly. And Jesus, having observed all of this the evening prior, he returns now to the temple and he calls the people to account. And we see here, he overturns, this is in verse 15, he overturns the tables of the money changers. He chases away those who sold pigeons. Your version might say doves. He chases them away um, because, they're, again, they're ripping people off. Verse 16 tells us that he begins knocking things out of people's hands. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple because people began to use the court of the Gentiles as sort of a shortcut to get from one side of Jerusalem to the other. And Jesus, they're disrespecting this place. They have no sense of the sanctity of the Temple Mount area at all, and Jesus is calling them out for doing so. Now, I want you to look down for a moment at verse 28 because down in verse 28, what we see is when the religious leaders do come to address Jesus about all that is going on here and all that he's doing, they don't condemn Jesus for what he has done. But instead, they inquire as to who gave him the authority to do these things. Jesus did what they should have been doing. And so they challenge him. They can't argue that what Jesus did was wrong. And so instead, they confront him about what gives him the right. Anyhow, verse 18, as we go back, it says, Now the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now we see back just one verse earlier in verse 17, that even as Jesus was chasing these folks out of the temple area, that he's teaching them as well. Look at that in verse 17. He's teaching them and saying... Is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer, and so on and so forth? And so what Jesus is doing there is he's providing justification for what it is, uh, what it was that he was doing, and why he was doing what he was doing. 
And that teaching, as we see here now in verse 18, seems to be resonating with the people. It begins to sway the people. Yeah, this guy's right. And that scares the chief priest. It, it scares the scribes. They're being put at risk, if you will, because people are standing up and they're taking notice that they've been ripping the people off and deceiving the people. And so what's their conclusion? Is it to repent of their wrong behavior? No, their conclusion is, again in verse uh, 18, their conclusion is they're going to destroy Jesus. Now, of course, now think about that, I should say. The priests of God are trying to destroy the Messiah of God. Talk about having a form of godliness, but denying the power of godliness. And these scribes, these chief priests, they had had enough of the Lord. And so they begin to actively plan how to get rid of Jesus. But of course, they fear the people, they fear the crowd. And so they had to be creative. They had to work in secret, lest the crowds turn on them. And so Jesus is allowed, if you will, they can't do this right there, right then with all these people there. And so Jesus is able to continue through the rest of that day. But evening comes, as we read in verse 19, and Jesus and his disciples, they leave Jerusalem again. And it says they went out of the city. They almost certainly, they went back to Bethany where they would spend the evening. Continuing on into verse 20, excuse me. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and he said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. And so Jesus and the disciples, they spend the night in Bethany, but the next morning they're going to make their way back to Jerusalem. <coughs> and once more they're going to pass by the fig tree that they had passed by the day prior. Verse twenty tells us that. This time, however, they take notice that the fig tree that Jesus had cursed is now withered away to its roots. Remember, previously it looked like a, a perfectly good fig tree. Leaves were on it, it looked vibrant, it looked healthy. And then Jesus pronounced his curse, if you will, uh, on this particular fig tree. And now the tree is withered away to its roots. And that sight catches Peter's attention, and he brings it to Jesus's attention. Look at 21, it says, Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed, or you cursed, has withered. Now you'll notice in Jesus's response, he never actually explains what he did and why he did it. But what he does do is he uses the incident to emphasize the power of faith and the power of prayer. And so Peter brings it up, and Jesus simply says to him, he answers him, have faith in God. He explains that this miracle was really the result of prayer, made a prayer made in faith. And then, as we see in verse 23, he encourages Peter and the rest of the marveling disciples that they too can exercise that same kind of faith. Look at 23. He says, truly I say to you, 
Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, I I do want to draw your attention to this. Catch what Jesus says. He says, have faith in God there in verse 22. And unfortunately, within the Christian church, there's a large amount of teaching today that seems to encourage believers to have faith in faith. And we remember that it's not the size of a person's faith that determines their effectiveness, but it's the size of the one in whom they place their faith. And so our faith is not in our faith and how much we can believe, but rather it's in our Father in heaven and how big he is. And so Jesus says that to his disciples. He says to them, have faith in God. Now, when Jesus came into Jerusalem for his final inspection of the nation, he found that faith was missing there. Here now, his exhortation to his disciples is to emphasize the need for faith. Faith is the principle of fruitfulness. And so if the disciples his disciples standing there with him, and if you and I desire to continue to bear fruit for God, we must continue to exercise and to live by faith. And look at 24, we have to pray in faith as well. 24 says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And so as men and women of faith, we can pray with confidence On any subject, as long as we're confident it's according to God's will, as revealed in his word, if we are, we can pray with confidence. And the lesson of the fig tree is designed to illustrate that important point. Faith was missing and lacking amongst the Jewish people there. And Jesus exercised his faith, and he's encouraging his closest disciples to do so as well. Now, since Jesus is teaching about prayer... He uses this as an opportunity to teach that we pray not only with faith, but that we also teach with an attitude of forgiveness, or excuse me, we also pray with an attitude of forgiveness and an attitude of love. And so notice how he goes on, verse 25, he says, and whenever you stand praying, it's almost like he's saying, and since I'm talking about prayer right now, whenever you stand praying, forgive, he says. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. And so, as a believer, if the ruling attitude of a person's heart is bitterness and unforgiveness, well then what that person has done is they've erected a barrier between themselves and God. Somebody has said this, the prayer of a bitter man cannot penetrate the wall of his own bitterness. And so a lack of faith is not the only obstacle to effective prayer, as we see here, refusing to forgive or holding on to bitterness can also hinder our prayers. Listen, you know this, um, this is not rocket science, none of us has any right to come to God that he might hear our prayers. None of us can come to God and demand that he listen to us or something like that. Because when we come to him, We do so completely by his grace and completely dependent upon him for mercy. Therefore, if therefore, we refuse to forgive our fellow man for his wrong against us, our unforgiveness shows that either we have no consciousness of the grace that we have received or we have put that to the side. 
If we refuse to forgive our fellow man for his wrong against us, our forgiveness show, unforgiveness shows that we have no consciousness of the grace that we ourselves have received. As I'm thinking about this, I was reminded of the parable of the unforgiving servant. Jesus told it in Matthew chapter 18. Go back and take a look at it. It's the story of a man who owed an impossible debt. Matthew 18.24 tells us that the man owed 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was 20 20 years' wages. Therefore, 10,000 talents would be 200,000 years' wages. The the point, it's, it's purposefully hyperbolic. The point is the man would never be able to pay off the debt that he owed. And so the man does the only thing that he can do. He falls down before the, the, his master and he begs his master for mercy. We read of it in verse 26. It says, the servant fell on his knees and he employed his master and he said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now the parable goes on to tell us that the master was moved by the man's plea for pity. And he showed the man pity by forgiving the man of his debt. We read in 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and he forgave him of the debt. He didn't just say, you know, take more time, get it to me when you can. He completely forgave him of the 200,000 years wages that he owed. That's a lovely story, but that's not the end of the story. And it's not the purpose of the parable. The parable goes on to inform us that that man who was forgiven 200,000 years wages, that he leaves that place and he finds another man that owes him money. The passage says he owes him 100 denarii. I'll read it to you. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe me. And eventually he throws the man into prison until he would pay him what he owed him. After being granted mercy for his incalculable debt, he went out and refused to show mercy to someone that owed him only a tiny fraction of the debt that he owed. Sad story, isn't it? And if you're a Christian, no matter how good or how bad you may be in the eyes of others, you know, the world around us may look at you and think you're a saint. You know the truth. The world around you might look at you and think you're one of the worst of the sinners. You know the reality. You know the truth. And if you're a Christian, no matter how good or how bad you may be in the eyes of others, the reality is true for every one of us that we have been shown by God an infinite amount of mercy. How then can we come to God in prayer refusing to show mercy to another person. Now that parable ends in a, in a very challenging way for us. It ends with the master going out, finding this unforgiving servant and saying to him these words. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? You see, the reality is the forgiven heart will forgive others. And so if you have a heart, a hard, unforgiving heart, such a condition, it calls 
into serious question whether you have ever truly experienced the mercy of God or, at the very least, whether you truly appreciate the mercy of God. And as we see here, it seriously hinders your prayers. And I would add, your walk with the Lord. And so as Jesus now addresses his disciples, they encounter this withered fig tree. Jesus teaches them about prayer. And he says that an effective prayer life is dependent upon two things, a prayer of faith and a prayer coming from a heart that is soft and loving toward others and showing mercy even as you yourself have been shown mercy. And so with that, this morning, my friends, we'll bring our time in God's word to a close. Read ahead. We'll not only finish uh, Mark chapter 11 next week, but we'll make our way into Mark chapter 12 again, perhaps in person or perhaps via video as we're doing here now. Let's pray together. Father, we, we take a moment to allow you to search out our hearts. And Lord, I imagine if we allow the, sp the spotlight of heaven to shine upon our hearts, every one of us will have an area revealed that Christ needs to enter into and to touch and to clean. And Lord, I suspect every one of us in this uh, hearing this sermon harbors within ourselves a little bit of uh, unforgiveness towards someone who has hurt us or perhaps is even presently hurting us. And Lord, we like this parable, we, want to, uh, we do not want to be the one that cries to you for mercy for our great debt and refuses to show it to another. And so Lord, I pray that you would work within us, challenge us, reveal first off to us where we fall short, and then empower us, Lord, to walk in the ways that you would have us to walk, to love and to forgive even those that aren't worthy and aren't deserving. Certainly, Lord, we don't want to have a moment here of prayer where you weigh us in the balances and we come up short. We're so grateful for the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us and cleanses us from all sin. And so once more, we come back and we confess our sin, and we ask that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close out our time together in a final song uh, that Jay's going to lead us in.